and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, the first episode since we've been back from our summer break. Yeah, hi. Welcome, welcome back. Good to see you. Good to hear you. Like, Yeah, you went strangely quiet for some, some weeks there. That was weird. We weren't contractually obliged to, to talk to one another, and so we didn't. It really did make me aware that our relationship is built on you only complaining to me about things not at all related to plants because at some point you'll have to talk about plants. It's like (laughs) you message me daily so that on the podcast you won't complain about those things. I think that's how it works, right? Like (laughs) there's like venting. I mean, I can see that our our intro notes are filled with the ocean is on fire. (laughs) Everything has turned to crap. Something about conservatives. There's yeah. a lot of bad bad words in there that I'm having to. Um, yeah, I, I, I wrote that on a bad day, um, but I also wrote good things. I can see that the phrase "climate politics" are a fad. Uh, yeah, like we we so. like, just to explain that in Germany we currently have like an election campaign going because we're we're voting somewhere in fall. Um, yeah, and the conservative party is doing their best to downplay any issue related to the, related to the climate crisis because the, that's the conservative, like the, if you mean the city like your main party yeah big, uh, big the guns. main party and then also like we have social democrats which are sort of like center left or i mean quite cent- centrist and um the green party is the big run-up this year like they compared to the years before they are really they they gain quite a lot of, of points and so on but so their main point is the climate crisis and they, we have to act now and so the counter campaign is downplaying the climate crisis <laughs> which is insane it's like is, nah they're, they're lying guys it's not that important don't vote for them exactly it's just like like public statements of, of oh yeah the, these young people today um we have to teach like we have to tell them in a better way that climate politics is not easy and don't have to be rushed or something like this um so this is sort of the 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 climate right now. There's like also massive smear campaigns. It's really, it's no fun. Re- I mean, it's never really fun reading the news. But um, these days, it's really like we we have our this own is- little German version of Trumpism happening right now. Of yeah, I mean, smear campaigns, fake week. news. Um, so yeah, <laughs> this is worse than Trump. Is what he says every week, and I mean, then it's like worse than Trump. Germany is a big has stretch. banned straws or something. I'm like, yes, Europe. <laughs> <laughs> sure, Europe. I think this would be it's a big point for me to mention that last night I went to a play about climate change, which like ended with the there was like a single actress. It was like kind of monologue. It was mixed in with an imagined future, ten years in the future, where there's like kind of water wars and and shooting in the street and rations, um, mixed in with like a story of a village in Bangladesh which is like getting flooded because of you know increased climate change risks. Um, and that was mixed in with like actual just facts about climate change, and it ended like single single person on a stage, not many props, like quite quite basic. But it ended with her like pouring oil all over herself. I mean, it started with her saying, I, "I'm going to be like rational and not go crazy. I could do crazy things and strip off my clothes and cover myself in oil, but that would be insane." And then by the end, there's like oil, and she's like thrashing on the stage like in a thing of oil, and it was like. <laughs> Such such an amazing experience. I mean, it was really it was really weird to watch that. Like coming from my background, where I have some some knowledge of climate change. Hopefully, by this point. Um, but yeah, that was maybe <laughs> all of your politicians can just watch that. Yeah, I don't really think it, the problem is access to information. Uh, I mean, I think it's a very deliberate. No, but this and isn't willful. this isn't information. This is like emotion. You know, like the information was like 
she mentioned how many koalas have died. That's if that's not going to make you engage with climate change, I don't know what is. Like, <laughs> I did, I I did so. feel quite like embarrassingly like what's what's the opposite of pride? Shame. Shame is what I felt <laughs> <laughs> at how often Australia got shout outs for like, you know, our country being on fire and yeah. us being quite awful generally. Wasn't there recently the like one ranking where Australia ranked like last in terms of Yeah, actions. I guess I sent that to you, right? <laughs> yeah, I think you sent that to me. Yeah, true. Yeah. Um, yeah i'm it's it's bad I we're mean, we, winning at being the worst <laughs> like hooray <laughs> so yeah. none of your germany is trump land now because i can i can win at this like yeah fair um, enough but enough enough of that um this is like also how how many weeks has it been we've been off for two weeks or three weeks i think three but i have i lost all time, sense of time yeah so there's this weird thing that's happening with me now where time has sped up again um, I I managed to like sneak in and get my second vax. Basically, a clinic had extra doses, and a friend of a friend found out and told me. And I happened to have a day off work, and it was like just four four weeks after my first vax, so I could like rush down there get the second vax. And ever since that happened, like I just feel like things have shifted mentally. And I know like it t- it takes another two weeks. Um, for things to like go into effect and stuff and it's now been more than those two weeks but like i just feel like the world has shifted <laughs> and like <laughs> it's gone into the fast forward so like i've seen i saw this this climate play last night again it's still like socially distanced with limited capacity in the theaters we still wear masks like in the theater um but like the previous I don't know, like four days before that, I also went and saw like Midsummer Night Dream that was outside at a park. And then like a week before that, I went to see another play called Afterlife. I went to like the cinema again, like everything like quite safe as far as like masks and distancing. Oh, look at um, you, culture like, person. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, but it's just, I don't want to sound like a complete, <laughs> sorry, you're going to duck quack that. I don't want to sound like a complete, but like, this is why I came to London. Like, I moved country and one of the pretty big driving forces was like, this is going to be something I can do and experience this place. And then I just like sat in my bedroom and I'm not going to say my suburb, like (laughs) for the last 18 months. And wow, it's good to like go out and like see people. I mean, it's been like, there's also been the football happening, um, which England was like really into, which is, I find that mildly terrifying when like lots of people are on the street wearing the same colors and screaming and shouting um sure they're happy but <laughs> that gives me that fills me with anxiety and dread i'm gonna be honest but like still events happening the world is alive like yeah really yeah. nice yeah i mean we went to the like our culture was going to the swimming pool with the with the kid and so it was like a very like family type not like the the, where you just go like back and forth in a big swimming pool, but like the kiddie type where you have mm-hmm. lots of splashing and one had like a wave pool and so on. Um, very crowded, um, very no masks. So I'm oh, counting on my vaccination to work. No, 
um yeah we also like um we're also opening up again and we have more events happening and i've had to go i could go to some restaurants that was all outside seating still but it was really enjoyable um apart from like one vegan sushi place like i went to warsaw um twice or a couple of times and we had vegan sushi there in the and last it was like, two weeks you went to warsaw no, amazing unfortunately I'm, I'm no unfortunately no, because there i would have had very good vegan sushi and then we went to like a berlin place and it was just like very mediocre but anyway apart from that lots of good food and it was what I, I was looking forward to again to like not having to eat the stuff that i cook all day every day um and going out and just having like some some stuff for a change so yeah it's really nice uh we also had periods of very good weather but also like a, a week of rain but it's all fine like like summer like summer events and activities and life is happening again and it feels really good yeah and i can shift my consumerism <laughs> to consuming like events instead of just things like mm-hmm. buying like clothes i don't need because my soul is empty <laughs> it's like that way a package comes for me that will be my week <laughs> and now it's like oh i can i can true like i i haven't experience. ordered anything big in a while now um and before before opening up like consumerism was my 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 way to happiness <laughs> which is like bit, very short terrifying how yeah how that's so yeah 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 apart from that like yeah we wanted to go on a big road trip uh that didn't happen because the car had like i hope a minor technical issue but one that made us not trust it that we would go for uh, like ride a car for a week across germany so it's in the shop right now um and so instead of just to be clear, it's not a car, it's kind of like a small van, so it's, it's like, like something yeah. where you can sleep in it, and you've got like a little kitchen and stuff in there, right? Yeah, yeah, it's like a little like, yeah, camper van thing that that we built, and um, yeah, we did like a little test run, uh, then did the engine, or something in the engine, like I have no idea, I'm not an engineer in that way, um, made some weird noises, and then we went to a shop and they're checking it out now, and we hope it's, it's fixed soon um but so i had some time that i i wasn't traveling and so i started learning new things and that was fun what um, did you learn i started learning python which like the, the the coding the script language because i wanted to do some like data visualization and somebody told mm-hmm. me like python is really good for that and i just tried to start with it just with a tutorial on the internet and it took me two days and then i gave up um of just getting the basic thing running like what do you mean? I'm used to like you, 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 you. When you install like any package to code, you get like a little editor, and then you type like print hello world, and you press run, and then somewhere it says hello world. I couldn't get to that point. Like it would always throw errors. It would always be like not Maybe working. Maybe it was was it just like a test where you have to ask it three times? Like they want to <laughs> see your dedication. It's, I you can't just like. Python is like. Look, I know you're you're used to all the doors being open, so you've got a very <laughs> charmed life. Some would even use the word privileged for your life. Maybe just knock three times. Don't just like yeah. give up immediately, arm. It probably was that, um, but I was like, "What is this?" Like I've <laughs> I've done coding before. Like it can't be that hard. But then in the end, I remembered it. Like four years ago, I bought an online course when it was on sale for Python and put it like somewhere and was like, "Yeah, I do that later." And I remember that now and I dug this up and then I followed like step by step the instructions that they gave to install it. And then I managed and now I'm like a couple of lessons in. It's really fun. And um, like learning like my in the end, I want to be able to just like take some data that I find and put make make it vi- uh, visually pretty and understandable. That's my goal. And that's fun um, mm-hmm. learning that. 
literally all I'm thinking right now is how can I benefit from your learning Python? Like, hopefully, what's in it for me? <laughs> hopefully, pretty pictures for our blog. That's the uh, the end goal. Can you fix I'm... my website? My website is broken. I mean, that's not Does Python. Does Python do that? I don't know. Could Python do that? Maybe you'll learn, like, it's an advanced step. You've got to do it for more than two days. <laughs> I'm still like, in the stage of, of yeah, so. writing, like, if-then routines and just, like, very simple programs. Like, um, no, I don't know if okay. I can fix your website still. It's um, maybe uh, at one point. I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm not that invested in your learning, to be honest, so far. I'm not really seeing. <laughs> it's just I'm it's, not seeing the pretty things. I'm not... Mm. Yeah, but like cool. before I was always like use R instead of um, Excel. Now I'm saying like use Python, but I also can't really say that because it's it was terrible to start. So <laughs> I can't really recommend anyone doing but it's, that. But it's different functions as well, right? I mean, it's, it's also like so. different like niches as far as like like our our field is is more with the r and there's a lot of like pre-designed yeah programs you can just sort of you know like modules i guess you can shove in and, and do yeah. pcas and you know basic stuff like that yeah yeah and the yeah. other thing i'm learning is i'm learning to drive finally at age like 33 Yay! i started doing my driving license uh driver's license um because yeah before i never needed it but now i have a camper van and i, I built the thing inside so i want to be able to drive it uh so yeah and it's you're not learning to drive on the camper van though hopefully hopefully no, like, like that's on a, not your first vehicle no no in germany you have to like you can't drive on your own with your parents like you can for example in the united states where your parents can sort of teach you how oh, to drive in and australia just, yeah in germany you have to pay for all of it with an instructor that's a lot of money right yeah yeah it's it's very expensive um, do you have a minimum amount of lessons you have to do there's like some things that you have to do like drive on a on the autobahn because it's germany drive at night and drive. yeah but it's not like you have to do like 500 hours of lessons it's like no. you just do it until you get good at it yeah but you have to do 12 or 15 or whatever sessions of theoretical stuff and I'm doing that right now. So every night what? at six, what I what is there to do theoretically? Like learning all of the rules, but there's like so much like driver's education in terms of like don't take drugs, uh, don't drink alcohol, don't drive when you're angry, and a lot of it is is taught with like instructional movies from the eighties that are incredibly cringy with like like amateur actors mm -hmm. that are playing drunk and then riding the car, driving the car and then having a crash always was like they don't really crash the car because that would be too so expensive. So basically you get free you get free movies as well. That sounds amazing. Yeah, but terrible movies like Anyway, um, to create a nice edit mark, Yoram has been discussing his driving. We've now had like a, a one-hour chat about the relative pros and cons of learning to drive in Germany versus Australia versus Britain. None of you care about that, so Yoram is going to edit all of that out and probably already <laughs> has if you're at this stage of the podcast. But um, we did reveal that Yoram's desire to drive has has stoked my competitive what response and now we're racing we're going to race to drive but like in a <laughs> but we're not racing once we have our we're permits. not racing in the car um we're gonna race to the licensing center i want to call it um and because yarm's already had a head start he will have to drive only with one hand from now on and like my instructor will be furious i'm like no it's a bet i can't use both hands and yeah sure Okay, um, trees, huh? Kind of cool is also on my notes. Maybe we should, um, 
<laughs> use that to segue ourselves back into talking about whatever this podcast was actually <laughs> supposed to be about. Yeah, what, I'm what sorry, it? guys. It's been it's been three weeks and we've forgotten. We have no. We don't all the sk- all the limited skills we've accumulated this this far <laughs> have just left us um yeah I, I i had to reinstall my computer and i had like set up everything from scratch again i was like how does this work like i have never podcasted my entire life please help me someone um anyway yeah trees like we're reading a book um we're reading for the plant book club that we will soon record we're reading the book the hidden life of trees and um I just thought, like, yeah, it's 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 talking a lot about trees. Go figure, uh, and it's they are really interesting creatures. Uh, the trees, t- trees, all of the trees. You just added all of the trees are interesting, and all of them individually are interesting. But the concept of do you a want tree that to be your favorite plant of the week next week? It's just like <laughs> trees. This week I'm doing trees, <laughs> <laughs> and my fact is they're interesting. Thank you very much. Next segment. <laughs> pretty much that yeah do you know that trees have wood oh no uh, but uh, but i've read there's this thing on the outermost shell i think is what they call it um the scientific term is like something it's like a shell yeah like like meow or bark or something and you would go for the meow that's that's a bit very predictable yeah i'm very dad joke yeah i'm sorry uh, i mean that's what i am a dad uh sorry <laughs> I just, okay sorry what's your tree fact you must i don't have really have reason. a tree fact like the, I, I wrote this down because i had like i put in the notes this massive rant about how everything is bad and then i remembered i have to say something nice like you have to do like the the bullcrap sandwich right <laughs> something nice yeah. something bad something nice and i needed something nice and i remembered the book that we're reading and uh, i just want to do this as like a little um teaser like Go listen to the episode when it's out on the Plant Book Club. But uh, it's an interesting book uh, that we will have things to say about. But it talks about like the biology of trees and them forming this this ecosystem that you probably haven't thought about in terms of within a species, like how a tree is growing and how its own offspring often lands around the tree and then um, gets sort of downsides of it but also upsides of it has like problems like there's hardly any light reaching there's only like three percent of the light reaching the soil below a tree because of the leaf canopy above so Mm -hmm. anything that's growing there has to deal with like three percent of the available energy um compared to the tree above but so that's a big penalty that's like a big big downside of growing next to you sort of your mother but at the same time, the roots are connected and there is a sharing of nutrients and like through like a fungal network. And I think it's also stuff that we talked about on the show. There is like some interaction between the trees and their offspring and that can help them sustain their life for longer until like uh, opportunity strikes, like a branch breaks off and there's like a hole in a leaf canopy and light comes through. And then the trees in that spot of light can grow quicker again and sort of mature properly. And it's just, I haven't really thought about this sort of, these relationships of the the different ages of trees within the forest ecosystem, within the same species. And then you have like all of these things happening between different species. So um, that's really cool in the book. um, They're talking about that. And and we will talking about that uh, as well, very soon. I think the phrase trees have Wi-Fi or trees have internet is what I've seen associated with these kind of like, it's all connected mm-hmm. and it's Wi-Fi, but it's not Wi-Fi. It's actually fungi. Like this is the, but I've, I've never sort of like looked into how real that is and how, I mean, yeah. There's some, there's some realness to it. I mean, it's not like the internet. It's not that like the trees are posting on like tree Tumblr. 
sorry, I have a question. So, sorry, this is related to the internet somehow. In the play I went to see the other day, the climate change one, the one of the, the phrases was about how the climate climate change is a very hard concept to understand, similar to the internet. And I, for me, that doesn't ring true because I think climate change for me, I find like, yeah, we're pumping tons of carbon dioxide into the air. <laughs> we should stop or we'll die. Like that seems quite simple. Whereas like, I have no <laughs> idea how the internet works. Like it's literally a miracle every time you and I podcast that like something doesn't break on my end. It's a series of tubes. Where are the tubes, Yoram? I can't <laughs> see the tubes. I can't touch the tubes. I'm, like I'm the are the tubes actually love? Like. I, I can touch climate change more than I can touch the internet. That's my feeling. Mm -hmm. Do you think they're equally difficult concepts or do you think... I think climate change is much easier. I mean, it depends on what level you look at it, I guess. Like, if you look at all of the effects of climate change, like like all the yeah, stuff that we see, that it's not just like that's temperature like if you look up. at all of the different pornography sites on the internet. Like, I mean, <laughs> we don't need to look at all of the things. We need to understand the, the basic idea of what it is and how it works. And, like, I think, like... Yeah. And I think their climate change is much less compl complex than the internet with like all its like service and architecture and distributed networks that still talk to one another and so on. I think that's all much more complicated than the idea like, look, energy comes in, less energy goes out, everything heats up, bad. This is like a very simple concept, I find. There's like polar bears upside down on an ice floor somewhere that are like waving their little arm <laughs> like a turtle. No, that in gets the too air, complicated. Like Why are they upside down, Tegan, in that in the water where it's cool? <laughs> Um. <laughs> <laughs> you stupid polar bag go in the water if you're hot <laughs> like what's wrong with you <laughs> wow I'm getting fired <laughs> we don't ah. think disclaimer all thoughts are my own and we don't think polar bears are stupid <laughs> no polar bears are very intelligent and climate crisis is very real and urgent and has to be dealt with like and speaking of the climate climate crisis did you see the thing that richard branson just nipped into space like <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah the billionaire space race um there's a picture of Bezos, like, he's got, like, aviated glasses on, he's got a space suit, and he's, like, looking prattling, like, like kind of like a, a fighter pilot's, like, blue navy, like, uniform, and he's, like, looking, it's, like, slightly from a lower angle, so that he looks a bit, I'm guessing he's trying to look like Tom Cruise in that Top Gun film. I've not seen that, because I do not endorse Tom Cruise. I also strongly do not endorse, what's the opposite of endorse? I strongly condemn jeff bezos and think he should be eaten um <laughs> and speaking of everything being on fire we should burn it all down and use the ashes to roast the rich <laughs> this is like this is what's making me mad right now every time i see these like we just nipped into space stories like fatigan space nip home again and deal with shit here we're exploring space it's so cool we as all of humanity we have a big advantage <laughs> if like three billionaires go to space tegan and if one of them is faster than exploring. the other it's and one of them i think was it elon musk who like tweeted that we're misunderstanding because actually him nipping into space is giving people hope and it's like that's rage like i know you're not good at reading emotions because you don't understand how human beings work but like that thing you're seeing on my face that's not me hopefully looking at you it's like searching <laughs> desperately for matches like that is what that look is <laughs> you're hopeful to find matches soon <laughs> yeah like <laughs> oh look i found them now i'm smiling why is she smiling she must be happy for my success <laughs> like we're all hopeful because we hope the rocket won't 
won't be successful. Like, I don't want to suggest murder is a good thing, but like, <laughs> ah, yeah. I, I mean, we we privately had this discussion before about like the the sense or senselessness of ex space exploration. Like every time we like have just... researchers do it, and then I I can see how you can have like the multiple is, opinions. There's about, no like... evidence that Richard Branson even took any Arabidopsis with him. Like, if you're gonna <laughs> nip into space, at least take some freaking like we don't know yet what space will do to the epigenome of Arabidopsis. Like nobody's tested it. Why? What are you doing? You're wasting your space nip. <laughs> Take some catnip into space, and then you can call it a true space nip, and we can all benefit as a plant community. Until then, <laughs> fuck off. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun you to tell me what the paper is about the introduction sentence of the paper is sleep is the state of rest that is necessary for all people to lead healthy lives what do you think this paper is about do i have to link it to plants yeah it's a plant related paper um it's about how like circadian rhythms in plants no. How plants also kind of sleep because, like, they have gene regulation changes. No, Tegan, that's that's completely off. Is it about pharmaceutical plants that can help people sleep? In a way, yes. In a way, yes. Um, uh, do you want to guess what kind of plant it is? No, I can't guess. It's lettuce. Um, what have you heard of wild lettuce? There's this idea that wild lettuce. Is it just rucola? No, it's like a, it's a relative to like our garden lettuce that we eat. It's like very, very bitter and not really enjoyable to eat. So that's why you wouldn't usually go out and forage it and put it in your salad. Um, mm -hmm. But there's the idea that it has medicinal properties and that you can use its sap as a sort of sedative and painkiller. And this makes it the rounds online from time to time because people think like, oh, opiates are bad. So let's looked into like uh, natural remedies and look at like wild lettuce and that's how i found out about it somebody on tiktok with like in a very convincing way was telling the story of how wild lettuce is actually this very good um, they were pro medicinal, wild lettuce yeah this very good medicinal plant um that has sedative and painkiller properties i was like is that true though and so i looked it up um because Jerem, the, is it true though <laughs> Is is actually TikTok where I should be getting my medical advice from? Is that is that the answer? <laughs> no, you digging. You might be surprised to hear that. No, TikTok I'm, I'm is not a good source for medical information. Um, the interesting thing is that it's also called lettuce opium by some people mm -hmm. um, because it has like this cultural history of being used in in such a way of of um, having this very sedative effect. Um, uh, so. Um, they, it was studied a, a couple of times, but not very often. I think the last experiment that I read about was like from the 80s where they um, did experiments on mice and they gave them 100 milligrams per kilogram of isolated latex sap from, this, from a number of different wild lettuce varieties. Um, and um, that just sort of to put that into perspective, I looked up like how much it is if you take like as an adult 200 milligrams of ibuprofen this is roughly like 50 times the dose just to get an idea of like the level i mean 
drugs work in different effect efficiencies so you can't fully compare that but i just wanted to know like it's like taking also like 20 times if you're a normal adult human who takes 400 milligrams of ibuprofen <laughs> and not somebody who grew up in germany and thinks that chamomile tea is ibuprofen <laughs> who, takes two, who takes one ibuprofen pill that's the recommended dose that i found no, it's not it's like i found it like i looked at i mean like some pharmaceutical like lexicon like lookup place and it was like for adults 200 milligrams um it's like the standard daily dosage is what they the were nhs saying. is like you can take three to four pills it's fine there's a difference between like the recommended dosage and the maximum dosage that you should not uh, exceed um but anyway no, no, i think like in 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 england we just really like paracetamol and ibuprofen like that's our drug of choice like as a, like as a nation it's like you're sick have some paracetamol which is not that's yeah. a cultural difference we have here <laughs> But anyway, cool. so 50 just, times as much as the typical. Just to give you an idea, like how much, it, if, if, if it would come in a pill form, how many pills you would have to swallow to get like the same level as these mice. Um, and then it used a fireboard test um, amongst some is that other why, tests. Sorry, is that why you use the lettuce? Because you don't like the you don't like swallowing pills? Is that the reasoning? I mean, in this case, you have to swallow latex sap. So I don't know how much nicer that is than the pills. Um, uh, but I don't know. Uh, I mean, this is like also like in a latex sap. It's not the isolated pure form of the active compounds. It's just like a, a crude mix of compounds. And if that would be effective, you would then isolate the actual compounds that have mm -hmm. the effect. And then that would bring down also the dosage. So um, you wouldn't have to then actually as a pill take that much. Um, but these mice had to take quite a lot of latex sap in their diet. And they were put then on a hot plate. And then time was measured how long they would stay on hot plate until they would move back into a tube that's cold again. Uh, mm -hmm. And it gives you an idea of the pain reception of the mice. Like if they have nothing, if they didn't take anything, they will very quickly say like, oh, this is unpleasantly hot and then move away. And I don't think they were like cooking them, but like hot to the point that it would be painful if you are not on painkillers. And some of these mice... Um, could stay there for over two minutes on these plates where the control mice would move away in 10 seconds. Um, yeah. My friend did that test when she was pregnant. They like do this, like the hot plate test for humans, but they make you put your hand in an icy mm -hmm. bath of water. And then like, you should remove your hand when it's, it's painful. And that's like for people who think they're going to have like a medication free birth but who can't stand like a second of cold water. They're like, you need to rethink your birthing plan. <laughs> like, I'm not, nobody's judging, but that was a second. <laughs> yeah. It's very similar to that. And it it's has basically a, that. It has very similar problems as well. That it's like a very simple test. Like mm -hmm. if you want to figure out like how effective a compound is as a painkiller, you have to do more tests than that. Also, um, my friend who did the test is like super stubborn and just like would refuse to m remove her hand no matter what <laughs> out of like, and I'm the same person, right? Like, I don't want to say it hurts, so I'm just going to refuse. <laughs> like, yeah, and I see two outcomes there. Either like all of the ice is melting and uh, the mm -hmm. water is hand temperature at one point. <laughs> like you heat up the water or you just get frostbite. And just, yeah, like, I'm not going to let, I'm not gonna let the, the water beat me, right? It's just that thing of like... <laughs> <laughs> so maybe some of some of the mice were just stubborn. stubborn. Maybe maybe they were um, uh, because yeah, this is uh, unfortunately this is sort of the only like systematic test that was done, and it was like a very crude test, so you can't really 
deduct from that that this works as a painkiller because when you do these tests with many different bitter plant extracts they have an effect on mice like um the mice stay longer on the on the hot plates if they get a large group of bitter plant extracts and we don't really know why or i don't know why but it just sells like just because the the, the mice are a bit more tolerant to heat doesn't mean that the plant extract is a painkiller yeah what happens if the only effect of the plant is like it actually makes your feet feel cold all the time. Like, it's just bizarre coincidence that the one test they were using yeah. happens to be... So people are taking wild lettuce? Yeah, um, you can buy it as, like, let wild lettuce oils, pills, um, or just straight up as the herb. Some people even smoke it, as, as far as I've seen it. Um, and take that in terms of, like... Smoking is actually always good for your health. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it helps with like uh, relieving stress uh, or they, they, they want to take it to relieve stress pain or sleeplessness um, it probably doesn't work but there's also no indication that it's harmful so as long as you don't take it instead of like an actually working treatment prescribed by a doctor if you sort of do this in your free time and you would not take proper medication instead or you're not leaving out any other sort of proper treatment then like why okay, not but i can see your notes literally the next thing on your notes is but it can be toxic if overdosed so it's not not harmful i mix like... it up with something else um <laughs> cut no keep that in <laughs> no no this is actually... why we should always disclaim that we are not medical doctors no yeah um so if you <laughs> don't you dare edit that out <laughs> Um, so it's not harmful if you take like one or two pills but as it turns out yeah you can you can like you can overdose on it um there's some cases reported where people would actually pick it as a salad and eat too much of it and then have like acute toxic effects but mm -hmm. they would not um they they uh, at least in a couple of things i read across they were not like permanent damaged so you feel very bad for a while and maybe you have to even go to the hospital but you're not permanently damaged but to me that's already like on the risk benefit balance the risk is very much very much heavier than the benefits um on the scale but yeah but that's wild lettuce i didn't know about like the whole thing about like lettuce opium and when somebody tells you on social media that lettuce opium can help you with pain instead of like proper painkillers i mean in fairness like you can also over d on like overdose on on ibuprofen so like yeah yeah absolutely sure but Tegan, what what is your fun fact <laughs> that you bring? Um, I don't know. None of my funs of my facts are fun. They're all kind of just like mildly terrifying. I mean, that's um, fine. It's it's like the. Did I tell you about this? I went once to a a museum in Australia where it had the range of jellyfish from like big to small, and they were all quite poisonous ones. And you like one of them, if it stings you, you will die immediately, and the other one gives you like heart palpitations. And then the smallest one, it was like. This will make you feel slightly anxious for two hours. <laughs> it's like a slightly bad trip feeling. Um, and that's all of my facts are the smallest jellyfish where it's like, <laughs> it's not the worst inducing. thing, but I'm not happy about the situation. <laughs> so the first thing, um, <laughs> there was a, a research highlight that was published in um, a nature journal, I think. And it was just showing dinosaurs and they were using computerized tomography, so basically looking at the 3D structural scans of the skulls of dinosaurs and doing this to understand how the dinosaurs can see and hear so you can kind of understand from the, the shape of the inside of the 
the skull. And they found that several different dinosaurs, I think, had shapes that suggested that they might be quite good at seeing well, to the point where they might see in the dark. Mm -hmm. um, that makes me anxious. <laughs> and one of them is called Shivuya Deserti. I'm guessing the bones were discovered in the desert, but that's just me. Or oh, while um, having dessert. Wow. Um, has not only good night vision, but also really, really good hearing. So it could find you probably in quite dark regions. Anyway, so there's this terrifying dinosaur that can not only see you in the dark, but also probably hear you in the dark. So you can never run and never hide and nighttime is your enemy. But I did look it up then and I found that, I mean... The good news is it's extinct, so that's like a plus for human survival. And the other good news is that it's also quite small. It's like a large chicken size. So I think like... <laughs> I, I find it more terrifying. If you imagine there's like an angry chicken that can see and hear in the, like, in the dark. Like see, you can't hide from the angry chicken that's out to get you. But it can't open doors. Can it though? I mean, well, if it's quite small, it's not gonna like. I mean, it could peck its way through a wooden door very slowly, but it's it's not like like a Velociraptor's like door handle height. So that's what you want to fear. But like a small chicken, it's like it's too low. At the same time, I've you got might, a just like bolted up high, and it's, it's never getting in. I mean, it come it can crawl through like the ventilation spaces and everything, and it's like spiders that somehow get in your room. It's like some suddenly there's like a chicken saurus in your room and you don't know like, oh, damn it, I left the, the window open and now I have like the night vision chicken in my room. Um, night vision chicken is a good name of a band, I think. <laughs> um, so that was the first slightly anxious fact. And then the second slightly anxious fact, I think I'll just like carry on from there is that there's been a new discovery about just how smart crows are once again. <laughs> and uh, this time round, it's the fact that crows can understand the concept of zero, which is like quite an advanced thing. So like, cause being able to count is not so surprising, but understanding nothingness is, I think like other monkeys and like, um, can do it, but yeah, primates can do it, but I don't know that other groups have been found to do it before the crows, as we know, Crows, super, super smart, our natural enemies, they're coming for us. <laughs> um, and now there was a study that came out in the Journal of Neuroscience, which just basically showed um, that they can understand zero. But I did want to kind of also shout it out is an example of like quite strong jargon because this is really not my field. And I think that's like a, a good reminder when, when you're writing stuff and reading stuff in your own sort of field that you're familiar with, you really forget how jargony things sound and then you just have to go to a, a separate scientific field that's quite close and you're like oh wow like that's really we really are not making it easy so the title this is like the title is basically crows can understand zero and it's called behavioral and neuronal representation of numerosity zero in the crow like <laughs> numerosity zero already to me it's making my brain hurt and that's <laughs> and then the actual statement is Dun, dun, dun. Despite its importance for human number theory, a special numerical quantity, the empty set, numerosity zero, has largely remained unexplored. Which just trains, crows were trained to discriminate small numerosities, including the empty set. So we could train a crow to see zero, one, two, and three, basically. Mm -hmm. like, like small, yeah. I think that's what it's saying, but like that's quite a complicated way of saying that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Please use smaller words, researchers, in your papers. So 
plant people can understand to grow papers because it's beneficial to everyone because then also people like maybe early research scientists uh, early career scientists who don't know all of the big words yet they have also a better time uh, understanding it i remember like when i started and i had to like read the first papers and as like as a german like reading them in english and then all mm. of these big words and to this day like sometimes i open a paper and i read the abstract i'm just like no no like if you come at me with these words i don't care for your research story like i don't have to read yours <clears throat> i can pick another paper and so i will mm-hmm. um and yeah it's it's really just a like it serves almost no purpose to use these words um like numerosity but um maybe I'm wrong. maybe like number is the wrong descriptor for that well maybe maybe a zero is not a nu- is zero a number maybe it's maybe it's and numerosity to, includes zero and, and number only includes To my understanding of crows and counting number is Am a perfectly I fine word. the crow? <laughs> is that what's happening? Here? Maybe the crow said that. Maybe like, what's that in numerosity zero? Where are my bugs? I want to have my bugs in the numerosity zero. And then the researchers were, had to look it up and were like, oh yeah, that's what the crow means. And then we're giving it the bugs. Yeah, so sorry, I'm um, just your your comment about like reading things like with scientific jargon, but also coming from a different language. Um, there's a paper that's just been published, like I think only in the last couple of days in Nature Human Behavior. Um, and it is by Amano and co-authors. And it's literally, it's 10 tips for overcoming language barriers in science. And it lists like a lot of different, you know, I mean, 10, obviously different tips, including like, you know, when you're getting scientific knowledge, make sure that it's sourced from different languages. Don't only go to the English source. If you are publishing in a non-English language, maybe include like English and then like vice versa, like abstracts in different languages so that there's more like um, cross movement. Um, making sure like new words, new jargon do like are defined in different languages because otherwise often um, other countries just adopt those, the English terms, which makes it harder for people who don't have English to even enter science in their own like language, let alone like, so there's just like a lot of different um, suggestions there, but also really cool. um, They have different boxes throughout and in the boxes they have the abstracts or sort of the, 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 um, Actually, the, the the summary of the article, so the 10 different reasons in different languages. They've got it in French, in Japanese, um, in Spanish, um, yeah, throughout the article as well. So they're kind of practicing what they're preaching. And also, I think this sets a bit of a precedent because it's not that common in big journals to have um, other language things at the moment. So there's a few... Like, like Canadian journals often have dual languages. Um, they have French and English, obviously. There's a few sort of localized journals which do it, but um, a lot of the big publishing houses I don't think are doing this commonly now. So it's interesting to see if this will become more of a consideration um, in the future. Yeah. It's like, come to think of it, like with the modern technologies, you could imagine that it would be much more common. Like just like basic web stuff, like clicking on a little language icon and switching over to different languages in the same web view. You don't have to like publish physical media in different languages. You can just like in the digital space, it's much easier to switch between them or have them side by side and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. that would be technically very easy. I mean, of course, the manpower behind it is the the bottleneck, like having the people curate all of that in in a meaningful way. 
Um, and I think you there's also this thing of like if it's at the source as opposed to a third party. So like I can also copy an abstract into translate and like shift it into a different language. But if it's sort of at that source, mm-hmm. that adds like the the reputability of it as well. And there's there's kind of that extra thing, and it also yeah it normalizes the different languages and also like there there is there is a problem like when when i search for stuff i often use google scholar and that's that's an issue if people are not having stuff on google scholar or you know it's not in english on google scholar like that that creates a bias in the way i seek information not just for like the research itself but also researchers like mm-hmm. depending on which profiles they have and where they're present like if the researcher only has their name on a non-English site, it's harder for me to find them, mm-hmm. which, like, it's my limitation, right? But this is something that hopefully will improve more and more. Like, yeah. uh, I want to play a new game. <laughs> huh? The Missing Link. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like... The sound of clicks and then you saying, huh? Yeah, because like you're clicking through links and then one is missing. And it's just like, huh, where's my link? I, I think I get it, but I feel like to be a jingle, <laughs> there has to be some sort of singing or music. So, Tegan, the game is, is simple. I just have like three things and I want you to mm-hmm. figure out what is the link between them. And it's usually okay. a word or a concept or an idea. So, the link... The, the, the internet. The, the, <laughs> The thing Climate is, climate change. Altair officinalis. It's a plant. Sorry, what now? Altair or Altair officinalis. Mm-hmm. A plant. Um, kids who are left alone in a room, and the Motorola Nexus Six smartphone. What is the link between these three things? Can I Google what the Alphania is? I mean, then you will immediately find what the uh, link between I won't. them is. <laughs> um, what's can I have a bit of description of the plant? Yeah, that's actually a good idea. So it's a plant that grows in like um, swampy areas, mm-hmm. uh, cultivated for a very long time, mm-hmm. um, already by um, in, in ancient Egypt. It was already a known plant and used. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a perennial plant. Uh, and um, what else can I say that doesn't give it away immediately? Um, yeah, the the interesting about the plant is everything the flowers the leaves and the roots of it have root uh, have use can you smoke it uh that's actually a good point like i don't know if i think some somewhere i read it but it's not the main use of it no um a motorola phone kids that are left inside a room mm-hmm. is the type of room specific is it a kitchen no, the room the room is not specific. Okay. But the reason why you leave the kids alone. They have to be left alone for this to happen. Mm-hmm. And the phone is involved. <laughs> no, the phone is like a third thing, but it's also linking to the idea that I'm talking about. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um and it's actually things that we talked about already in the past. It's like I left my son alone in a room for that reason. Uh-huh. So it's um, doing this marshmallow challenge. Mm-hmm. Is it a marshmallow plant? Is that what it's called? Yeah. yeah. The plant is actually <laughs> called marshmallow. Um, hey! <laughs> and 
Um, What's the mobile phone got to do with it all? There was Android version 6, like years ago, had code name Marshmallow. Like Android <laughs> is calling or naming all of their operating <laughs> systems like sweets. Yeah. And version 6 was Marshmallow. That was the one that like screwed everything up, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so cool. Yeah, yeah, this plant is called Marshmallow. And um, it's... Like, it's the reason we call the marshmallow a marshmallow. Uh, because back in the days, like, like ancient Egyptians used the plant because it has, like, emulsifying and stabilizing properties. Like, the, the sap of it is pretty much like egg white. If you whisk mm -hmm. it, you can, like, stabilize stuff with it. And there's, like, some descriptions that they would mix it with honey, for example, and then sort of solidify the honey in a foam-like structure. And maybe they use cool. it as sweets. Maybe they use it for, like, medicinal properties, like like antibacterial properties of honey that's not really clear from what we know but they used this plant already and made like this like yeah rubber like or like elastic uh stabilizing texture and then like literally thousands of years later like in the 19th century in france they would use this this plant it would, was um, slowly sort of traveling north by the way it's used like it originated or like it was first used like yeah in egypt but then it it reached france and there the confectioners they were using it um to make something was called pâte de guimauve and this dough doughy structure was just like a mixture of sugar egg whites the sap from from the marshmallow plant um, and you would cook that together. It would like take two days to solidify, but in the end, you would get a marshmallow, um, often flavored with rose water, and you get like the spongy, sweet texture. And it was like a very fancy thing then. It was like it it was expensive to make, and it was like it took a long time to make, so it wasn't like uh, um, like a sweet for for the masses, but um, very exciting texture. Um, and that's where it stayed for a while, like an, like a, a French specialty. Um, but at one point, people figured out that you could use other things as well uh, um, than the actual marshmallow plant. And so we started using gum arabicum, like this uh, another plant extract from an acacia tree. Um, yeah, we've talked about that before on the podcast. Yeah, that has also these stabilizing properties and then also gelatin because that's very cheap, especially then later, like um, turn of the century, um, like 20th century, when you like gelatin became suddenly this commodity um, that was very Just available. Leftover horses, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, like leftover hooves from pigs and everything. Um, and so that's why how we make most marshmallows today. We don't actually use this plant anymore. Um uh, and yeah, that makes the whole process quicker and cheaper and so on. So today's marshmallows, they are not actually made from the marshmallow plant anymore. Um, but maybe I wonder if you can still find it in like some, some French like confectioner shops. Um, and the plant itself can, can be eaten like a root vegetable. But okay. apparently it's not very pleasant to eat. So um, I found like on Wikipedia, it said like, in times of famine and like lack of access to proper food, people would then eat this plant and would also give them sort of some nutritional value. But it's not something that would actually grow as a crop to eat. It roots. sounds like not super nutritious if it's mostly just like mm -hmm. foamy. <laughs> it doesn't sound this Also like, like cooking it must be really weird. Stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Maybe thickening of soup to make you feel full when you're not doing Maybe that could well. be it. Uh, but yeah, so that's the marshmallow plant, uh, Altea, uh, Altaea officinalis. And that was the thing that maybe I will do again in the future when I find free that's things really that cool. fit together. I like that a lot. Yeah, do it again. Do it again. <laughs> Good.
I will do it again then. So I was I was enjoying doing these segments where I describe the methods and mm-hmm. then you have to guess it. But I was and I was trying to find a paper for that and I was so hopeful. I was so optimistic for this paper and then it just didn't have anything. No, so what I, what I did find was um, a title from the Journal of Ecology. Actually, I think a lot of my, my methods paper come from Journal of Ecology because it's always got like cool like animal-plant interactions going on. And it's called The Role of Plant-Pollinator Interactions in Structuring Nectar Microbial Communities. So basically, the nectar of plants has microbes living in it. Turns out there are filthy bacteria and things everywhere. It's not really surprising. Um, but they were looking at how the microbes living in the nectar was linked to what species were pollinating the different plants. And I think, like, not super surprisingly, they found that it did match. Um, and actually, like, the the microbes segregated better based on who was dipping their filthy tongue into the nectar as opposed to where they were physically located in the world. So it was like, wasn't geograph- geography, it was um, the the pollinators themselves Mm -hmm. which again is is not really surprising like if you and i both have a yogurt in our kitchen and like i stick my finger into mine and you don't yeah i think that the bacteria inside my yogurt is like that that makes some sense to me right like that it's is what's been i mean i know it's like an open system anyway so things can blow in but like yeah so what i was really disappointed was that they they gather a lot of nectars and they they like streaked out the nectar onto um petri dishes to sort of grow the bacteria and then sort of see what was what was growing there um yeast and bacteria actually but my disappointment was that they then just sort of looked at what plants were visited by what pollinators and i really expected them to like scrape the tongue of bees (laughs) to like they they had 48 plant species and then looked at beetles birds and insects with either long or short tongues in um, sort of wild populations. I, w- I really expected there to be like a weird, like, you know how some of these methods, I, I wanted them to like either scrape this or like have something where they set something up that the pollinator would like lick it and then it was like a, like they had a little <laughs> postage stamp and then the pollinator had a lick and they're like, ha ha, now we've got your DNA. Like, or they invite the they invite him to a bar and then like he drinks and then they're like, ha ha, you should not have thrown away your cup, Mr. Criminal B. And like, that's how they... Like, that's what I wanted to see here. And it, it was observation-based. And it's just not as good as, like... Having a bee lick a Petri dish. Tricking him into licking it. That's what I wanted to see. I wanted, to, like, that that subterfuge to be happening. Um, <laughs> it's like Or something really weird where you, like, have to tickle the bee under his left armpit. And then he, like... <sighs> like, I had a cat where if you scratch a certain bit on its back, it would lick its paw. Like, if there was that kind of thing that you could just... That would also be quite beautiful. But this was... Yeah. Look, this, it's a good study. I'm not saying like I'm not saying it shouldn't have been published, but I'm just saying. I mean, yeah, you're not angry. You're disappointed. More, I'm I'm sad that there was not as much about the tongues themselves. That's that's Unders- all I wanted in my pay plant papers. <laughs> I can understand that very much. Yeah. Uh, I have you heard about a um, plant that they discovered uh, in the Malaysian rainforest, the fairy lanterns. No. Oh, the ones that are now gone. Yeah. Because of wild boars or something? Yeah, exactly. They they found these these weird plants that are not green um, because they don't really do photosynthesis, um, but they still form like weird blooms, um, and they are they belong to the group of fairy lanterns, and they they studied them, and it's like it's very exciting to find this like new species. 
but um, they are very tiny. They are living in a forest where um, where they are sort of sitting beneath the leaf litter, um, and so yeah, they they live in an area where there's lots of wild boars, and they couldn't find any more specimen, um, and so they are afraid that they might have seen it just before it got extinct. Um, because like wildlife trampled over it, but maybe it's also because it's so small they couldn't, they just couldn't find it again, like needle in a haystack thing. Um, so maybe in ten years' time we will have one of these cool stories where like plant that was thought to be extinct actually still alive, um, f- found in a weird place somewhere. Um, but yeah, but there's some cool pictures of that that we're linking to. It's like a, if you see it, you would think it's like a weird fungus or something else, but it's actually I- a plant. I have a confession to make. So I I saw this story earlier today and I scrolled past it because I was like, fungus, (laughs) just kept on going. It's like, not interesting. And I love fungi, but I was like, this is not not plant stuff. I don't need to like store this for the podcast. Um, It looks like a fungus. Yeah. Yeah. With like a very weird flower structure. It has like this sort of three arched hat sitting on top of the flower um chris thorogood um from q gardens actually was involved in doing some of the scientific illustrations for that and um you can see from on on his twitter it's like linked in the article that we're linking um you can re- very well see the structure of the plant from these like scientific illustrations that uh, that he was doing so um yeah interesting uh, interesting new find. Hopefully not extinct, but yeah, so far we couldn't find it again. Uh, the the story I said read that there was like I don't know four and three had been trampled. There was like one remaining spot that had them still. That's what I saw this morning. Yeah, yeah. Only four have ever been seen, and uh, two locations were disturbed by wild boar activity. Um, okay. So it might have been. It might, like, we don't know for sure, but it might be already extinct because, like, we know very little of it in the wild. And, like, so often, like, logging and using, like, rainforest land to grow palm oil um, is threatening also this species, like so many others. I have a fact that's actually fungi, which is <laughs> makes it even more embarrassing that I was like, I'm not going to talk about that because it's fungi. Um I, I recently bought a book that's called 140 Artists' Idea for Planet Earth. And it's basically a collection where a ton of different artists have been asked to give their ideas for planet Earth. Um, but the ideas can be like a photograph, a piece of art, like a short passage, like a poem or something, or something that's sort of more like instructions. And one of the ones, it's, it's, it's quite a cool book. Cause it's just like this random thing that you can open up to a page and read something or look at something. Um one of the ones I saw was discussing how to dye fabrics um, using fungal spores. And I found that really mm-hmm. interesting. I think like natural dyeing is quite a cool topic. And we've talked a bit before, especially when there's sort of like this more molecular biology or chemistry side of it as well. Um, we've talked before about cyanotyping. So um, these mixing liquids and using sunlight to, to make a insoluble blue pigment. Um, that you can create sort of photographs with and this is this is doing it um not with light but instead with lichen um uh maybe not lichen maybe it's just fungus um i just i wanted (laughs) so much to be poetic there yeah in fact it's a bacteria but its shape resembles a filamentous fungi Mm -hmm. is what i'm seeing so i have one article that's calling it um a fungi but i think it's not 
Yeah, it's an actinobacteria. Yeah, and basically you can put the um, the fabric in a sort of solution which has these um, spores on it. And over time, you know, it takes some time, they, they grow and um, they, they produce pigments. They have um, polyketides, I think it is, um, which gives different colours, so sort of bluey colours. Um, and then you, you get this kind of fuzzy, almost tie-dyed look with reds and pinks and purples and blues, but sort of quite natural hues, obviously, like nothing mm-hmm. crazy, but like quite quite impressive. Um, and I'll put a link. There's sort of some examples of the dyeing and, and how it turns out. But you have these pigments, but also the, the sort of the growth of the the colonies themselves comes into play as well in forming the the patterns, mm-hmm. which is quite nice. Yeah. Nice. Uh, that was, again, <laughs> describing something visual. <laughs> as always, we'll link to images and more source material in the show notes, so you can always have a look and see what we're talking about on this audio medium, like all of the visual things that we're describing. Um, because we're very clever. No, I, I like the idea of um, like going away from classic chemical dyes and looking for alternatives for that because so much of that is so incredibly toxic um, and on the sort of application of dyeing the, the actual fabrics. So if we would have something that's less toxic and we can actually yeah, grow bacteria and then sort of fix that onto the fabric and then have color f- color, um, that would be really nice. The thing is, I'm not actually sure how in salt, like how well these stick to the fabric, because that's the second part, right? Mm-hmm. So you can make a color, but like for it to dye texture, it has to be like washable. How is that with um, cyanotype, by the way? Like, is this like, I mean, it's insoluble? It, it's washed out, so you can't like, can't use it on clothes. You, well, I did use it on clothes and then it kind of washed out. So it wasn't okay. like, it's, it's theoretically insoluble, but it didn't stay in properly with yeah. washing. Like it, it, it went away, which was a bit yeah yeah but it's but that's a tricky part with like fabric dyes like getting the fabric into a color and then keeping it that color through like a hundred washes or something so Uh, this says like the streptomyces produces pink to red um which is molecules called prodigynine um and then it's got the actinorodin but that one is more water soluble and that's sort of the more bluey color. So I'm not sure. I think that's also why you get different patterns depending on the solubility of like the, like diffusion happens differently. Um, and then also like as the, they grow, they change the pH of the environment as well, which also because it's a pH dependent dye, um, that's what shifts the colors. At, so that's why you get these kind of cool shapes. Um, and it's, it's like, you know, really unique and, and sort of different single dye batch kind of thing but i'm not sure how i'm not sure how well that would stay cat fact and uh you wouldn't have guessed it but i'm not talking about cats today specifically wait i have an actual fact about a cat I mean, then do then do an actual cat fact, and I do mine another time. No, do yours. Mine is not very interesting, but it is about a cat. 
I found a story that's asked the question like, what is the chattiest animal? Like the animal that <laughs> communicates the most. Sorry, or- sorry. You know that in English that's chattiest and you've said it's chattiest to try and make it sound like French cats or something. No, I, th- I, try- I thought I pronounced it right. To be honest, I didn't hear a difference between the two things that you said. Like it's chattiest. <laughs> So, How do you say cat in French? What's the chattiest animal? Yeah, that's. <laughs> I thought you were deliberately saying chattiest like it's cat in French to try and make it into a cat fact. No, I didn't realize that. It would have been clever, but no, it's like the chattiest. <laughs> the one that do, does the most chats. The most cha. Um, so. <laughs> Yeah, the question, like, I, I thought it's an interesting question. Like, what, what animal is the, mo- the chattiest? What's the one that's, like, is it Do the I one that guess? speaks the most? I mean, I can tell you right now, wait, there is no definitive answer, but there's, like, a couple of sort of ideas wait, behind it. Is, wait, wait, wait. This is, like, a thought exercise. It's a thought exercise. It comes sort of to... To name a group of animals, that's probably so the chattiest. it's not about cats, and it's also not a fact. <laughs> yeah. My cat fact is that a lady in the US woke up with a serval lying in bed next to her. <laughs> that's a great fact. Yeah. Sorry, okay, what's the chattiest animal? Um, there's some sort of bird, like a kookaburra. Kookaburra is pretty chatty. Birds is a good is a, is a good point because um, birds are very chatty. They um, vocalize. They make a lot of sounds. So you would think mm-hmm. like making a lot of sound qualifies you for being chatty. But earthworms. That's also the the, <laughs> the question is like is it is it communication that you're counting because then you also have like nonverbal communication um, that's in there. That's the thing about is earthworms. It, They've got a lot of like expressions with their little faces. Yeah, that's what they're like. They're known as the actors of the soil um, Mm -hmm. because they're so full of expression. (laughs) Um, But then, yeah, it could also be like like audible uh, communication. So um, there has been some interesting points in this article that we're linking. First of all, like in general, like communicating complex information um, or, or vocalizing in general has its downsides and its upsides. Like... If you vocalize, like if you're talking, you get eaten. Yeah, exactly. Like, first of all, like w- me talking to you conveys information from me to you, so that could be beneficial. I mean, but information also me talking, is a stretch. <laughs> me talking makes people angry around me and trying to harm me. Um, so I have to balance out like how much am I talking, and th- mm-hmm. that's a balance that many animals have to strike. And so this is no big surprise that many animals that are very vocal they are on top of the food chain. So these are animals you don't have to fear that they're being attacked. So if you think whales, for example, dolphins, elephants, humans, all of them make very complex noises that have like different meanings. They're not just like like a bird that's saying like, look, I'm here and I'm ready to mate. They can convey more information than that. Um, that just make like... Most of the time when animals are communicating, they're just being like, I'm ready to mate. Like, there's a lot of, that must be a, a quite a heavy... I mean, I, I guess also whales are saying that very often. I mean, humans do that all, like, 90% of the time, but um, it's... Also, they just make, like, dolphins are just so, so they just, when they're chattering, they're just basically being smug over all the other fish who have to shut up because they'd get eaten by a dolphin. Yeah. 
Like, it's just this extra level of smugness. Hey, look at that school of fish. Let's go have lunch. And then the they're, fish are like, they're oh, the 17 no. to 20 year old men who are <laughs> yes. in. That's a callback to a part that we cut from the show, guys. You don't know what that's about, but it's really relevant. And if Yoram hadn't edited, you would have laughed a lot then. Um, <laughs> um, but so, yeah, but that raises a question. Why are like small songbirds so chatty? Like, why do they make so much noise when they are so easy to eat? Like a cat could get a songbird and that's why it's a cat fact. Cats can get can catch songbirds because they're singing. I think they do it because they sing at like four in the morning when the cats are sleeping. So they're <laughs> like that person sleeping. who they're like that person who knows that you like are hungover and they only scream when you're hot. Like that's that's the reason they do it that early, right? Um, do we understand why birds scream in the night? Like I once saw a like a clock of when different birds in Germany scream. And I was like, this is useful now because I can know who to be angry at. And there's some of them who, like, they start singing, like, three hours before dawn. What's the purpose of that? I mean, then there's less noise from other birds. I think they're just, like, stretching out so that always, like, somebody's screaming and they don't scream over one another. It's very considerate bit of the birds. <laughs> it's because songbirds are also descendant of apex predators. Like, if you think dinosaurs, callback. <laughs> um, that's at least a theory that, like, they... They have like the because it's not just no. like no it's 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 like a developmental thing like to have the, the the resources available to develop all of the brain stuff you need to be vocalized and communicate um, you have to be in a place where that's beneficial for you and that's often like apex predators top of the food chain but then evolution continues and it was just not beneficial to sort of um, lose these abilities again. Um, so they kept these abilities, but went sort of down in the in the food chain. These these songbirds, and that's why they are singing today. That's a theory. Like it's hard, like, very hard to prove that. So you can't really say like, okay, let's do an experiment on that. But that's yeah, that's one of the possible explanations why songbirds, even though they are very much at risk of being eaten, are so vocal and so easy to spot based on their singing, um, because they took this evolutionary route to, to where they are. So, I'm an apex predator. Like, I just yeah. ate some pepperoni on a pizza and everything. And even I, like, I vocal, I, I talk quite a lot, quite chatty. But context to context, I can usually work out when to shut the <laughs> fuck up. And when it's... yeah. What you're saying is that birds, despite being quite smart, again, a callback, um, still have not, over many, many evolutionary times, that was a bad sentence, over many years, many generations, still think they're an ape, like... No, no, they don't think they're an apex predator, but they still have the sort of the tools in the brain to be vocal, and of course yeah. they also shut up, but other animals that are sort of at the same level in the food chain that didn't come through the route of once being Okay, like, I can understand like, yeah, you need like the mechanisms and like, you know, yeah. a nice chest cavity and, you know, nice Yeah, but also like a lot of like, like, they specifically in the article talk about like the energy that's required in the brain to be vocal. Like this uses a lot of like high, like high energy demand neurons that have to work well to be like quick to, to be able to vocalize. So this is sort of an, an energy expense to to have that uh, in your in your brain, it's not just like the vocal cords and everything that you need, but also that, like also like the muscles have to be very 
fast and flexible to make different sounds and not just like mm -hmm. one grunt noise. Um, and so, yeah, that's what they got from that. I mean, of course, their behavior adapted over time and like a bird shuts up when a cat is nearby. Um, so they, they learned that. But other, like a mouse can't do the same level of complex vocalizations, even though it's sort of in a food chain comparable to where a bird is, like a small songbird. Like the thing about birds is they didn't all, like dinosaurs were not all apex predators, right? Not all of them, no. But And I'm guessing like a lot of the ones that made it through were quite small. I mean, these, these mass extinction events were followed by like small animals doing better. Right? Yeah. Like, so basically, the chickens made it through. Yeah, but chickens are and apex predators. I don't know predators. if they were ever. <laughs> I just. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I, there, I, don't know even... I don't know enough about the evolutionary history there exactly of the birds. I'm just. I think there's even a thing where, like, there was no medium sized dinosaurs. I think this is no such thing as a fish fact. There were no medium sized dinosaurs because the juveniles of the big dinosaurs took up that ecological niche. Which basically means that all of the the little dinosaurs would basically just be constantly eaten by <laughs> by bigger dinosaurs, right? Like that seems like that niche that they're occupying is eating smaller dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I I I think our idea of what a dinosaur is and what a dinosaur really was is still very skewed towards big lizard kings and. Yeah, I mean, maybe uh, the, the article actually doesn't say that dinosaurs. They just say, like, among the birds, we found that the parents in the songbirds were descended from apex predators. So their ancestors were at the top of the food chain. So I think they overcome predation and then get away with vocalizing a lot. Maybe it's, they mean, like, a falcon or something. Yeah. It could be something like like a, um, a bird of prey. That, I don't know what the common ancestor of the birds are, where it's sort of diverged, if it, if it was something like a, a falcon or something similar that didn't really have to fear being eaten by dinosaurs or other large animals or large cats. I mean, it wasn't like really a saber tooth tiger. how birds works. No, or evolution or in animals or anything. But like, I found the idea, I, I like the idea that, like, like, that the great, 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 great grandparents of like the little annoying songbird that sings at like four in the morning was an apex predator because this was like... This like descent like this this predecessor was like ruling its time and yeah. now like one of its like tiny little annoying descendants has still like the brain capacity to be this like dangerous apex predator, but now it's like a small songbird that gets okay, eaten by a cat. What this reminding me of though is I think it's from a David Attenborough documentary. There's like a mouse that lives in like the desert and it roars. <laughs> it's called like a lion mouse and it like comes out of its burrow like at night time and it just goes like Rah! but it's like a mouse so it's like <laughs> um, do you think did the mice actually descend from lions is that what i'm hearing <laughs> like that's what i'm taking it's away a from mouse. it like, <laughs> i mean it's an apex but it's it's a very small local maxima like it's like i think it eats like bugs <laughs> Yeah, but where it is, it's the king of the very tiny hill. So I think that's okay. That's not, that does sound quite interesting, though. I, I, I think there's like the the idea of having to develop these vocalizations, like in the like that's quite fascinating, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I never knew how complex, like the stuff 
is in the brains. Like I never thought of how much it is an expense in sort of developmental terms to have. Also, realistically, now I'm thinking about it, I'm really disappointed about how like unchatty a giraffe is. Like those are quite big. Not many things are bringing down a giraffe. Like, why are they not chattier? <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe at one point, like in, during evolution, they will develop like complex language because then they need it. I mean, I mean they should also, get on it because they're not going to be around for much longer. <laughs> Time is up. not on this. <laughs> like, dude, you're a big animal. Like, <laughs> you should these just... next few centuries are going to hit you hard. <laughs> you should start talking. If if I were you, I'd be writing a book right now, my memoirs, because you won't be sticking well, around. Well, it also definitely help them get sick. I mean, they're, they're already doing pretty well. People love giraffes, right? But like... Whichever animal talks first, I'm pretty sure, like, we can guarantee we'll try a little bit harder to save that one. So you, like, want, you want, like, nature got talent and, like, the big talent show and the one who's st whose talent is talking will be the one that, like, all of the conservation money flows to? I so mean, it's you already, you mentioned that Nature Plants paper a few weeks back about how we like the prettiest plants and we, like, pay them more attention in the media, but also in research and, like, in conservation. So it already is, except now it's only based on looks. And I'm actually suggesting something that's more egalitarian because I'm saying, let's just not only say the pretty giraffe is pretty, we can say he's pretty, but also he can sim sing, like, <laughs> opera of some kind, I don't know. Hit me, what, baby, one more time. Yeah, what would be a good song for a giraffe to sing? Like, like, uh, there's some probably there's some song about like being high up She's in so the air. <laughs> so at this point, Tegan sang "She's So High" by Tal Backman. Imperfection, like the entire song. I don't know. I think it's like five or six minutes long. Um, she did all of the parts beautifully, um, but because of copyright claims, I can't show you the full thing. So sorry. So I think, I think with that, like what the listeners don't know, there was like a short break here where I had to catch a mouse that the cat dragged in, literally. Um, but See, now that's we're a back. cat fact. <laughs> yeah, I should just leave that as a cat fact. Cut everything else. It's a really depressing cat fact, though. Um, yeah, that's it. That's we're actually like I was looking for cat facts, and the IFL science had a cat fact, and it was like, in some suburbs in Australia, you'll have to keep your cat indoors all day, and I was like, that's not. <laughs> A cat fact. That's that's just local bylaws. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, we're back with our weekly show. You can like like us and subscribe to us and everything on wherever you listen to podcasts, iTunes, whatever, and rate us there. That would be cool. But we also yeah. have a website: www.plantsandpipettes.com. Um, we've also been taking a break from that, and I've also been taking a bit of a social media break, to be honest. I haven't been on Instagram very much in the last couple of weeks, but now the summer holiday is over. Um, I think this podcast was a little bit of a, a, a dry run on the way back in, but um, <laughs> we'll be back to our normal selves, hopefully. Yeah, I hope so, too. Um, so, yeah, on social media, you can reach me on Twitter. That's at Plants Pipettes. On Instagram and sometimes on Facebook, um, it's at Plants and Pipettes. And our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. That's it. Goodbye.